the lubber's hole a patrick o'brien podcast you're with ian and with mike and together we're doing what we always do we are rereading the aubrey matrimony novels of one of our favorite authors patrick o'brien mike remind us please catch us up where did we get to last week where are we headed to this week remind us Oh, Ian, I'd be delighted to. Thanks so much. Well, last week, Ian, in chapter four of Clarissa Oaks slash The True Love, Jack and Stephen had each written home about Clarissa, talking about her impact on the, the, the ship and everything and about her character. But both of them missed her effect, the effect that she was having on each of them. Now, Stephen's very worried about her impact on the officers and even warned Jack by means of a Shakespearean sonnet not to be tempted by her. We learned that Clarissa may well have thrown Martin's kitten overboard in the last chapter. And at the gunroom dinner, Jack saw the jealousy between officers, the end of the gunroom. And he vows to work the, you know, the officers and the crew harder going forward to keep their idle hands out of this mischief. Well, Clarissa did get everybody talking at that dinner, which seemed on the verge of failure, but she also seemed to incite Davidge to duel whoever may have hit him. You know, know, we're trying to get behind the wound that he brought to that dinner. Well, this time, when we last left them, they were sailing into a storm. The storm continues. They're stunning revelations about Mrs. Oaks. Stephen and Jack reveal the depths, and sometimes the lack thereof, of their nautical and birding knowledge. A prize is spotted after Jack has been driving the ship hard, and our mission, at least the current mission, continues. Fantastic. If that happens and the mission gets to continue on the trajectory it was on before, then that'll be great, but I'm... I'm I'm going to wait till we get to the end of the chapter, Mike, just to see how close we are to getting this mission. <laughs> it's always Under a good, good plan with Patrick O'Brien, right? There's always something. So as you say, Mike, the wind is blowing. The wind is blowing harder and harder. There's a storm. And for Jack Aubrey, this is actually welcome news, welcome distraction, welcome new focus, you might say, for him and for the crew. He's sailing the surprise as hard as he can, given how far he is from supplies and dockyards. The wind and the rain and the sea call for really close attention, call for really great seamanship. Jack is on deck and wet most of the time. And other than occasions when he's doing this whilst chasing an enemy, this is his favorite form of sailing. He's really into it. He's really into driving the ship. He's really into driving the crew as well. And if it wasn't for his anxiety over the breakdown in relationships in the gunroom, I think he'd be pretty happy. The hands are happy enough for now. They're smiling and nodding at Jack. He's beating to windward with all his zeal. He tacks instead of wearing, and the privateering tendency among them quite like that. They start to suspect that he's got something in mind. He spreads so much canvas that Pullings, the eternal first lieutenant, is looking a little bit anxious for uh, for the standing rigging. The crew and the officers are very sure, to to borrow a phrase that was from way back, I think, Mike, in either... HMS surprise or post-captain, they're very sure that the chase has a beast in view, meaning that he has some kind of intelligence of a prize. Jack 
is working the offices just as hard as he's working the hands. He's sending West and Davidge aloft as reefers. So they're taking on the role that midshipmen would have had, namely of leading the crew when they go aloft to shorten sail to reef. And he's riding them hard, riding them constantly. Stephen and Martin are busy with injuries that arise from all this work and all this weather. Sarah and Emily, the sweeting girls, are a big help to him in the sick berth. They're not squeamish. They keep the injured guys company and they change their, their tone of English, their English dialect, to suit the uh, the antecedents of whoever they're treating at the time from the foredeck or from the quarterdeck. Martin is also interested in this idea of language and he overhears somebody mentioning battening down and asks Stephen to explain it. And Mike, you know, we all know that Stephen, uh, he's not the person that you go to first for any nautical explanations, but Nathaniel Martin's trying to keep well in with Stephen here. And, uh, Stephen pauses, it kind of almost clearing his throat. And I, I love this moment in the book where it goes full silent in the sick bay and the sailors in the sick bay all kind of look at each other like, he's going to try and explain battening down. Huh, is he now? And they, they take on these vacant expressions and Stephen says, oh, I'll, I'll draw it for you. But Martin, thank heavens, is is interrupted by Reed being carried in. Mm-hmm. And, and young Reed here has been struck on the head by a block. He's fallen on a marlin spike which is wedged between his ribs. And Mike, I remember the first time I read this, I thought, really block? Really Marlin Spike? You know, is this some other kind of disguised injury of discontent from among the crew? But no, it turns out that this is really what happened. He's got this horrible injury with the Marlin Spike between his ribs. Padine lashes two chests, meaning storage chests, not ribcage chests, lashes two storage chests together to be an operating table. He probes and examines the wound. He hears the cracking bones. He looks at the, the the pale, panting reed. And Mike, there's, there's a couple of ways in which the, this scene takes me back to the amputation scene of uh, the midshipman in the in the Peter Weir movie, Master and Commander. Right. Uh, but we get this evocation of the pale, panting face of this young kid. Tells Martin in Latin that this is going to be painful. Go get the laudanum. He says to Padine, go fetch my instruments. And he doses Reed with the laudanum while Padine is absent, which is a smart move, giving Padine's history with laudanum. Reed's tears are running fast despite his fortitude, and Stephen withdraws this bone splinter that's been pressing on the thoracic nerve. I'm like, I, I can only imagine what kind of agony this might have been. And this is the other moment where we go back to the scene with Paul Bettany in the Peter Way movie. He says, I've never seen a braver patient. So little tiny, little tiny Russell the Crow alert for us right there. Well, Jack comes back to see Reed. He'd come earlier right in the midst of all this. Stephen had waved him off. And and in addition to checking on how Reed's doing, he says that Mrs. Oakes would like him to ask the doctor if she would like her to sit with Reed. Stephen says, well, you know, let me see how he's doing later on. But what I really do need is for a couple of men to bring a cot and to put Reed in it. So Bondin and Davis show up uh, and, and they bring the cot, they hang it, and they move Reed so gently that he never stirs. Hmm. Stephen sits with Reed, who mumbles in his sleep. He's mumbling about the ship's speed. And while he seems to be you know, mumbling and talking, Stephen takes the time to ask him if he'd like Mrs. Oakes to sit with him. And it, O'Brien writes, Oh, her, said Reed. After a long pause, he went on, they go in and out of that door like a body house. I see them from here. Turned his head away and drifted off again. Damn. So 
uh, you know, there's this, there's this, you know, huge reveal here potentially about Clarissa Oaks, at least from Reed's perspective here. And, you know, Stephen then tells Jack that, you know what, a medical hand is going to be required for Reed. So, you know, we're going to move him downstairs for constant attention. So I think, you know, it's, it, it was, it was really nice to see the crew's gentleness towards Reed. Yeah. It's kind of nice to see Stephen who's been watching Reed, you know, and his changing attitude towards Clarissa, seeing what he's going through now, Clarissa wanting to come see him and saying, no, 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 I'm moving him down into my world. We're going to be protecting him. Uh, right now, which, you know, kind of made me, you know, continue to wonder about Clarissa Oaks here. Yeah. And it's very telling that how he talks about it. He says, oh, her. Yeah. And, well, let's let's see how the chapter unfolds and let's see what Reed's really been experiencing and witnessing here. Back in the cabin, Stephen says that the Tempest has somehow been, been disarmed, that they, the weather is calming here. And Jack confirms, yes, it's dropping steadily. If they hadn't battened down, he said, Stephen's bed would be soaked from the last downpour. And this battening down, let's just stick a pin in that because Stephen's already been showing off his chops, allegedly knowing what battening down really means. He asks about Reed, Jack does. And Stephen says that he's going to be okay now that this rib splinter has been removed. And as long as there's no infection, he thinks it'll all go well. He says something that he's often said before, that the, the young are wonderfully resilient. Now, he's going to get over the injury there, Mike, but is he over... Clarissa. And I think that's where that oh her really points to us that there's been some emotional connection, at least between Reed and Clarissa, if not something else. Yeah. We remember that last chapter, you know, he would no longer look at her. He wouldn't speak to her directly. He got himself nothing but dead drunk in that dinner for her. So yeah, not good. Yeah. Poor kid. Well, Jack's not really on top of that undercurrent here. He's just happy to hear that the Doctor's done his stuff and that the prognosis is good. He's glad to hear that this is all working out surgery-wise and says, meanwhile, Stephen would be glad to know that Jack and Tom know where they are from their recent lunar sightings and they should reach the Friendly Isles tomorrow. And Mike, this is really funny, this interjection from Stephen, who, for for heaven knows what reason, decides that he's going to really roast Jack Aubrey over this. You will never tell me, he says. You'll never tell me for all love that you've been careering over the stormy ocean like a mad bull day and night without knowing where you were, that if you had run violently upon an island, friendly or not, where would you have been then? Your soul to the devil. And Jack says, well, hold on a minute, friend. He says, there is dead reckoning, you know. Very, very mildly. Jack's not going to bite on this barb from Stephen here. Shall we have something to eat? (laughs) And I love... The relationship between Jack and Stephen. I love Stephen kind of flaunting his lack of nautical knowledge. And I love that Jack, with his very, very tender care for his particular friend, also was able to bring him down with the offer of food. Which, right. Which sounds very male to me. Right. Well, and, and, and you know, in true form, to your point, Ian, you know, Stephen realizes that he's, yeah, he's starving. And, and while they're eating dinner, Stephen asked Jack to explain the term batten down, which Jack had just used. And the text says, a piercing look showed Jack that although this was almost past believing, he was not, in fact, being made game of. Jack's no, like, no. Wait, wait a minute, wait. But then Jack, you know, gives him an honest explanation. He's so kind to Stephen in this, especially in in this realm of nautical terminology. You know, he explains the term hatches is often used for hatchways and ladderways, but that real hatches 
cover the hatchways. They cover the gratings. They cover the closed hatches. And they are themselves covered with tarpaulins when there's a great deal of water coming aboard here. And Stephen says, oh, you know, I, I believe I've seen it done. And Jack thinks to himself, yeah, not not above 5,000 times, but yeah. <laughs> very calmly to explain the use of of battens, you know, these strips of wood that pin the tarpaulin down, you know, kind of drum tight and emphasizes how the surprise uses cleats, which he'll show Stephen in the morning, rather than the sloppy unseamen way of nailing the tarpaulins to the deck. So, oh, you know, yes. here we go. Jack pride in his girl, the surprise <laughs> and, yeah. you know, and, a, and an ongoing lesson for Stephen in the morning. It's great. And this this business with battening down the hatches, Mike, you know, it's a real thing. To get goods into the hold, you need a big opening in the deck. But from a stability safety point of view, a big opening in the deck is absolutely what you don't want. So they've got to be really serious. And you know, ships to this day, cargo ships with uh, with open decks like this, I've got to be really serious about making sure that you know we you don't get free water on any of the middle decks because then stability is gone. And there have been plenty of shipwrecks with failures to batten down hatches to, to prove it. So. Jack's on the right side of this, I think. Mm. And as exactly as he said, Stephen can't have failed to have seen this dozens and dozens and dozens of times. Anyhow, it's a nice way for him to get reminded of this thing that he promised Nathaniel Martin he'd draw a sketch of later on. We get back into the failing relationships among the crew, though, because first thing in the morning, and we learned that this first thing in the morning means different things to different members of the crew, first of all. Long after the crew had done their first thing in the morning Stephen, first thing in their christian morning as he calls it is greeted by oaks and asked if he'd like to join the captain to see these cleats because the captain now is aware that Stephen wants to have these cleats pointed out to him oaks as o'brien writes to us was a pale silent dangerous looking young man now no longer an oafish overgrown youth but he managed a smile for Stephen and nodded you might see something else too. And Mike, given what we have just heard from Reed about the conduct of other men and Mrs. Oaks, this is all starting to sound a bit ominous. Mm. And to begin with, the ominousness has to fade into the background a bit because it turns out that the something else is, is a beautiful visual spectacle. We've got a beautiful blue sky and intriguingly, we have an island off in the distance. The wind is blowing from the island. And so we get this strong scent of land. The captain is up at the masthead with everyone else looking at the island. And it turns out looking at more than just the island. On his way there, Stephen meets one of the Sethians, this fellow, John Brampton, who had just finished his spell at the wheel and who asks Stephen if he admires the captain. Says everyone knew the captain wasn't cracking on for sport. He's implying that the captain had some mystical inside knowledge of the existence of something close in proximity with this island. Now, this thing, a ship, a supposed prize we're seeing is right there, close in with the island. You can't deceive the captain, says Brampton. And this is a, a little moment of dual hubris for Jack. He knows how to batten down a hatch and he knows how to sniff out a potential prize in a gale. Yeah. So Stephen, you know, proceeds up there to where Jack is. Jack slides down a backstay and, and O'Brien writes his boyish agility, making an odd contrast with his worn face. So, you know, we just had a great conversation, an interview that will be coming up. And, you know, one of the things we talked about is the role of age in the canon here. And uh. another O'Brien reference here. But 
you know, Jack asks after Reed and Jack offers to show Stephen the cleats. But Stephen says, you know, first I want to hear about this island and this sail that's been sighted. And Jack tells him it's Captain Cook's Anamuka, one of the Friendly Isles being named because of Captain Cook's warm reception there in 1773. Although, interestingly, some local history from uh, back in that time says that act- the leaders there actually wanted to kill Cook, but couldn't agree on a plan. So, yeah. <laughs> so with with the inability to come to a decision, they just were very nice to him. But yeah. well done. Well, Jack says the sail is likely a European whaler. And Stephen hopes that Jack will sail straight in, take his prize, and turn Stephen and Martin ashore to examine the island, you know, to kind of go explore nature here. Now, on their way to the cabin for coffee, Jack shows Stephen the surprises cleats that were invented by Sir Edward Hamilton, the surprises captain, when she cut out the Hermione in 1799. We'd heard about that in one of the gunroom dinners a, a few chapters back. Now, Jack notes that he was also later dismissed the service for having seized his gunner up in the rigging. And Stephen says, oh, you know, you're not supposed to do that. Jack says, no, 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 the gunner, like you, Stephen, is protected by his warrant. You know, the captain can only confine a warrant officer to his cabin. And if he wants to go further than that, he has to be brought up on a court martial. Now, Jack comments that it's very whimsical that two of the captains of surprise were struck off the list and brought back so soon. And Ian, this is this is actually historical fact, right? This yeah, is this, true. This is absolutely. There's, there's even though there's a little bit of foreshadowing because Captain Cook did indeed exactly as Jack is telling the story here. Spend some time ashore in this place called Anamuka. There's a really nice picture in the Royal Maritime Museum at Greenwich, and we'll try and get that out onto our socials um, as we as we uh, hit the uh, airwaves here. It's now known by a shorter name. I think it's um, Namuk. Anyway, it, the, the the island has changed its name, but it's still there, and it's foreshadowing for Cook because he had a warm and and friendly reception in the Friendly Isles and not very far from here later on in his life, he was ashore on one of the islands that are now part of Hawaii um, and was murdered by natives <laughs> and uh, and his body was disemboweled and then returned to his crewmates as a skeleton. So they were friendly for a while, but it turned out not to be a happy ending for Cook. Edward Hamilton himself also named here by Jack as a former captain of the Surprise, was made post into the Surprise in 1797, was knighted, so became Sir Edward Hamilton in 1800 for retaking the Hermione, an action that we've heard about a few times, including earlier in this book. He was dismissed the service for this gunner infraction that Jack is talking about in 1802, uh, but was restored, as Jack said, due to the favour and the intervention of King George III just a few months later. The king was willing to believe that Hamilton's eccentric behaviour was caused by a head wound that he'd received in 1799. So, and Hamilton went on to have many illustrious appointments. He was commander of the Royal Yacht. He became a baronet. He became a rear admiral, a vice admiral, and then a full admiral in 1836. Uh, His older brother, Charles Hamilton, had been an admiral um, in 1830 as well. So, Brian doesn't need to reach very hard to invent these lovely bits of backstory that he weaves in. They're, They're already there in the contemporary history, and it works really, really well at this point. So, Pullings and Oaks join Jack and Stephen for breakfast. Remember, breakfast is always meant to be a sort of a working type of a session. They're allowed to talk shop, which I think makes it altogether a more easygoing thing than the gunroom dinner of a little while ago. They talk about the breeze. They talk about the sailing. They talk about the frigate's urgent need now for water, for livestock, for vegetables and coconuts, and all the work that they need to get done on the rigging. So it's, it's not only Stephen who's looking at this 
island and this whaler with a bit of an avaricious eye. I think the officers and crew are as well. And Jack, probably disingenuously, asks after Mrs. Oakes, since Mr. Oakes is right there at the breakfast table. And Oakes says she's well, but stumbled against a locker in the storm and is staying in a cabin for some time. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think, we, you know, we both paused at that section. And sure enough, in the next thing, O'Brien tells us that Stephen excused himself from the breakfast early. There was just a little too much ship talk. And O'Brien writes, Stephen's thought that guests obscurely oppressed, somehow shifty. So I'm thinking he's, you know, he's thinking about Oaks here. And I think he's saying that same, hmm, that we said here. Well, Martin greets Stephen at the rail, gives Stephen joy of the island and the prospect of a noble prize, saying that the hands have all told him that she's a deep-laden American whaler. Uh, he hopes the captain will take her and give them, uh, he and Stephen, a run at the island. Stephen says he'd like that also. Martin says he's heard there's an owl on the island, and Stephen's a little doubtful, an owl in Polynesia. So Martin asks the bosun who's visited the area before, and the bosun said, oh, yes, sir, you know, purple owls so thick on, you know, some of the trees at the watering hole that they could barely tell which were owls and which were trees. <laughs> so I think this is a little, maybe a leg getting pulled. Yeah. Martin trying to check the veracity said, well, did they have ears? You know, and it says asked by like somebody who doubts, you know, whether he's going to get an answer. And and the boat says, why well, I can't, I can't actually say, don't recall here. Oh, it's great. I love the idea, the idea of purple owls. Like, can you imagine purple owls? I don't know. Right, right. You know, and, and the inability to tell the difference between this tree full of purple owls. Is it the purple tree or the purple owls? Right. <laughs> having, a, having a run at Martin. Well, S- Stephen fears then, given the, the hiatus and how difficult it's turning out to be to beat to windward to get into this island, he fears that maybe they're not going to get to the island. Jack explains that the wind and the tide are currently against them. and They could beat for some time. They might never reach it. Uh, Stephen notices, though, that the crew are working very, very hard to keep the boat sailing and to get as close to the wind as they can. They really love a prize. And now might we get this really odd note struck by Nathaniel Martin. And Nathaniel Martin starts out by saying, well, I love a prize too. And that's okay. He's been aboard the surprise for a little while. He's enriched himself personally with a little bit of the prize money. And he goes on and explains himself in a way that's really, really unsettling. He says, I don't want to be seen as a worshipper of mammon, meaning a worshipper of riches and, and wealth and gain. Mike, there's a reference here to the Sermon on the Mount. Do you want to talk us through what Martin might have had in his mind here? Yeah, this this use of the word mammon, you know, very much a, uh, you know, a biblical word, one that actually, as it as it went from, you know, Greek to Latin, you know, Arabic to Greek to Latin, it just got carried over mammon. It If you dig way back into it, it means riches or material wealth or gain. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is pretty specific about this. You know, in Matthew 6, 24, he says, no man can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. And that's, mm. I'm, I'm using the King James version. I'm not, you know, I don't often do that. Not for all the, the yees and thous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but you know, uh, Jack's going to mention King James later in the in the chapter. And I thought, well, to a nod to Jack and the fact that King James likes sailing. So we'll, we'll use the King James version. Besides, King James brings mammon forward as well, as opposed yeah. to riches or wealth or money. 
Very good. And it, this is all sounding like this is this is regular Nathaniel Martin, but he lets himself run a little bit. He says, "Prize money is different." Okay, so we've we've heard before right. people manage manage to talk themselves into, you know, talking themselves away from the regular code of morals and ethics. Prize money is different, and now even more bizarrely, he says, "I'm like a tiger who's tasted human blood." And this is this is no kind of King James gospel that he's got in his mind here. He hopes that the captain was making game of Stephen the way the bosun had been making game of him. And Stephen says, well, that could be true, but we've been able to get in and out of ports before. And he suggests that they may not be dismal, but instead he says, suppose that we sail in tomorrow, butcher the whalers to a man, take their goods from them, carry our butterfly nets and collecting cases into those verdant groves. I mean, butchering the whalers to a man. He's teasing Martin, I think, for his newfound bloodthirstiness and for his newfound avarice. And this is... This is a side to Nathaniel Martin that's not really pleasant to see. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Ian. I'm, I'm really starting to wonder here. You know, we had Martin kind of saying, you know, I can understand the, the, the men that really are attracted to young boys. That's the impact that Clarissa Oaks and a reefer's clothing had on me. Now I'm like a tiger that's tasted human blood on this whole prize money thing. Well, interestingly, we're thinking this is this is kind of a different side of Martin than we've seen before. But O'Brien quickly goes and says, as they're sailing in, Stephen and Martin are talking. And Stephen's thinking that Martin has become his old self again, open, ingenious, amiable. And he wonders what that change is connected to. Is it connected with a change in prosperity and family cares? Is it connected to something related to jealousy or perhaps something else? But Stephen thinks to himself, well, whatever it is, you know, something had loosened their former close bonds of friendship, his friendship with Martin. And now they seem to be tightened a little bit better. They're enjoying the birds. They're talking together without reservation, which is really nice. And as they're talking together, a boat is lowered to tow the ship's head around. And Stephen says, you know, it's a perfect day for Mrs. Oaks to take the air. He's wanted to go down and treat her, but Oaks had said, no, 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 you know, don't bother. It's only a bruise. And then the text says, the hound said Martin in a low, vehement voice, his face quite changed. The infernal young hound, he beats her. And boy, you know, from from Reed mumbling a little bit in his sleep to Martin, now the old Martin, happy Martin back and now completely changed here. This is that second major revelation about Mrs. Oaks. So does he beat her? Does she say he beats her? Is this Martin somebody? We don't know. Brian's just kind of giving us reported speech and I guess leaving us to sort of connect the dots so far. Yeah. And it's not only the connection between rivals for Mrs. Oaks's attention and affections. Now there's domestic violence breaking out, we think, between Oaks and, and Clarissa herself. Right. So, there's, there's nowhere that's not affected by this, so it seems. Anyhow, the promised attractions of shore and vegetation and supplies and this whale or whatever it is are all still a little bit out of reach. For days now, they can't get into the harbour. Food is getting low. Jack could make for another island, but he doesn't want to leave a potential prize, especially knowing that there are privateers in his crew who really expect that of him. However... The ship that they can see now starts to look less and less like a prize and maybe more and more like a, a, an ally or a potential rescuee. This ship never tries to escape, doesn't do anything, seems to be just sitting there waiting for them to come on in. 
And therefore, the mood of all the surprise goes from cheerfulness to restless discontent and a tendency to be quarrelsome. Mm. And to point that up, Mrs. Oaks finally comes on deck and she has a black eye. Stephen says that he had hoped to call on her, but Mr. Oaks had dissuaded him. And she says, well, I was I was bored, so I wish you'd come. Um, didn't want to show up looking like a prize fighter. So she's sort of trying to laugh off this black eye that she's got this injury she's only out now she says because it's getting dark she's wearing this scarf partly over her face jack comes over and makes some civil inquiries and there's this awkward moment where pullings and martin and west all appear and there's this tense of dislike or tension between them it's got greater that their attentiveness to clarissa seems to have declined in proportion to her looks because of the black eye. And that sets this really kind of shallow, selfish tone about the actions of all of the officers here. She, in turn, was doing her best to be agreeable to them, particularly winning in her ways, apparently. And later on, Stephen thinks there was another emotion there, what he thought of as a want of regard. But he can't say exactly on whose part. Hmm. Hmm. But this gets reinforced for Stephen the next day. You know, he sees it in the officer's tone. He even sees it in the attitude of, of some of the crew members. You know, most of the crew still smile at Clarissa with warmth, but some faces have taken on a questioning look or puzzled or deliberately expressionless, you know, when she's around. But the day is, is really taken up with completely changing all the sails, over 30 of them, to accommodate Jack's perceived, you know, it's kind of intuition that the weather may be making a change here. But Stephen notices that when Jack is not on deck, there's much more, as he says, damning of eyes and limbs than usual, much more wrangling, much more contention, much more reluctant obedience, which, you know, you might find more often in a privateer, but it's rare and dangerous in a ship of the Royal Navy. And I couldn't help but think, you know, we just heard this story about a gunner being seized to the rigging on this ship in the past. Yeah. Like, you know, I don't want a whole lot of discontent going on here. We've already seen this kind of hair let loose in the last chapter, and we're seeing some of this continue to get worse, this catalyst we talked about before. Well, Stephen notes, though, that for every foremast jack who looks askance at Clarissa, six cast a cold eye on her husband. So, you know, and you talked before about the division starting, you know, when the officers are out of sort with one another, it has this impact on the crew. And we're starting to see that here, too. So, you know, there's starting to be a Clarissa faction, an anti-Oaks faction, it looks here. And later, Jack is back on deck and he hears two men just you know, kind of vehemently cussing each other up in the top. I think they didn't realize he was right below them. And he has West take a name. Hmm. Yeah. This, this no longer sounds like the happy surprise that we know and love. No, and this is something that's going to come more and more in this chapter. We have we've got not only this discord between the officers, we've got dissent between the officers and the crew and this is all starting to feel like the community of the surprise is under some serious threat here. Well, Mike, I, I think this might be a good moment for us to just withdraw. Let's go and check in with our petty officers and our enlisted men and make sure everybody's still okay and everybody's still saluting the flag. And while we're out there saluting the flag, let's grab ourselves a quick drink of something. We'll be right back after this break. 
If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. We hope you're refreshed. Things have been getting a little better on the scene of HMS Surprise since you've been away. The wind has changed, and we read in the novel here that they're now making good speed toward the island. Fantastic. The mood aboard now is one of laughter and merriment, and as the hands finish their dinner, we see a great pahi. Now, we've heard of pahis before, when Jack and Stephen got marooned in the South Seas a few books ago. This is a pahi, a double canoe with a deckhouse, coming toward the surprise from the island. There's a white man in a coat aboard. And Jack thinks this is the moment to be smartly turned out. He dresses to receive them and gives orders not to let any South Sea Islanders below deck unless the captain invites them. And he's clearly expecting some light-fingered behaviour. He says anything movable on the deck is to be screwed down, including the anchor. Whoa. Well, that's, that's quite a big statement. Um, the boat arrives, and the boat shows some naval correct etiquette here as it goes politely up along under the leeward side. A white man and an islander come aboard. The white man is a fellow by the name of Wainwright. He's the master of this whaler called the Daisy. And Pakia, the underchief of Tiara, the Tiara people. Wainwright says the underchief has brought a dish of, sorry, a present of fish, fruit, and vegetables, and Seeing that Wainwright is taking the role of translator here, Jack says, please offer my thanks. He names his officers, invites the guests to the cabin as Pullings brings the gifts that they've got set aside. Jack serves them some refreshments, some Madeira. He shows Wainwright some red feathers in a drawer and says, are these going to be okay? And Wainwright says, oh, Lord, yes. And Pakia, mimicking perfectly, says also, oh, Lord, yes. So I like this moment here that... Uh, all of a sudden, we've got this slightly comic, slightly buffoonish scene of barter and kind of buttering each other up going on between Jack and the uh, the Islanders. Jack gives Pakia the feathers, some scarlet cloth. Remember the scarlet cloth? He's giving away a bit of that here. Right. And also a small magnifying glass, which Pakia really takes to and uh, returns thanks for in a long speech. Wainwright says that Pakia hopes that Jack will come ashore and tells Jack that he doesn't speak English but can echo the last words that he hears very well. And we've heard that already. Um, Wainwright duly translates Jack's happiness at coming ashore and sets up this plan to trade for hogs, coconuts and yams, and also maybe a walk around the island. This is sounding great, Mike. This is what everybody, Stephen, Nathaniel Martin, the crew and Jack, this is what they were all hoping for, right? It is. It's it's great for Jack, great for the crew, certainly great for Stephen and Martin. And Wainwright says it's it's you know really good for him too. He's glad Jack's coming. He says he has grave information about his ship and he's in need of a carpenter, his mate, and a cooper. He tells Jack that he said to himself when he first saw the surprise, My God, we're saved. And Jack asks him how he knew the surprise. And Wainwright says, Well, there's no mistaking that towering mainmast. He tells Jack that he sailed in company with the surprise many times in the Channel and the West Indies, and he's actually come aboard with messages from the flag. He had passed for lieutenant in 98, but had never gotten a commission, so he joined the merchant service. Now, you know, I think Jack can really relate to this. We've, we've heard about this earlier in the canon. And Jack says, like many other first-rate officers, 
and you know looks at him shakes his hand it's like you know you're you're kind of one of my kind of people here and you know one of like jack has so often looked at his midshipmen and said you know i want to get them there you know they they, they're good sailors but they don't have interest They, they still should get a ship well, it's great. Jack's making more connections as part of his kind of extended naval family network. Meanwhile, the extended Polynesian family, well, yeah, I'm not sure it's all going perfectly. Wainwright suggests that this is the time for Pakia to take his own people back. He says they can be a bit of a nuisance on deck when everyone's busy threading the channel. Wainwright says that he can now show the surprise through the channel, through the reef. So he's offering to, to be a local pilot here, which is a great thing. The Polynesians, other than Pakia, had meanwhile come aboard bearing their gifts. There were what O'Brien describes as three freshly oiled bare torsos of the friendly women, pun intended. They had talked with the officers, including Pullings, Mr. and Mrs. Oakes, and Stephen. Yeah, not entirely sure that's a, a safe set of conversations. One woman had carried on quite the conversation with Stephen, even though he can't understand what she's saying. And she's laughing and gabbling away, and she pats him on the knee. Stephen finally leads her, in the hope of some kind of connection, to Sarah and Emily. The woman addresses them and laughs when she sees that they can't understand her, and meanwhile gives Emily one of her necklaces and Sarah the mother of pearl pendant that she has. Jack and Wainwright and Pakia, the chief, come on deck. And Pakia says, okay, we're done with the socializing time, everyone back in the boat. A crew member then tells Stephen, oh, the little girl has stolen your handkerchief. And Stephen checks and pats his pocket and says, I don't mind the handkerchief, but I regret that she took the little lancet. And O'Brien says that as they headed off to shore in the Pahi, they had taken some other involuntary gifts besides five handkerchiefs. They had taken two glass bottles, a tobacco box, five iron belaying pins, two wooden belaying pins, and as Stephen has just pointed out, a pocket lancet. And Everyone is reflecting that this is probably okay. The islanders having brought much more with them than they'd taken, except for the fella who'd lost his tobacco. And except, I think, for Stephen, who's had cause to mention the Lancet already. Mike, earlier in his book, he was talking about the, the Lancet as his his ready accessory for a little, little quick momentary stab of pain that will cure the men of all of their lust and their toxic masculinity. He talked about the lancet as being the thing that he might have used to take that little scrap of bone out of Jack's ankle. So this little lancet has been in Stephen's hand a few times as the thing that he can use to correct the ills aboard the ship. And now, Mike, that little lancet is no no longer there. Yeah, this is I, you know I think that's so well spotted, Ian. This is you know maybe O'Brien's way of telling us, mm, all you know all may not be well here. I yeah. couldn't agree with you more. So they go back down in the cabin and Wainwright tells Jack an English ship and several seamen have been detained in Moahu. Wainwright's owners have six ships which meet at Moahu to refresh and exchange news and instructions before heading for different destinations. And they, you know, they kind of do this, you know, once or twice every year. And depending on the winds, they either pull into the harbor in the south or more often into the north. And um, you know, we learn a little bit about these harbors here. And Wainwright draws Jack a map of the island. The Northeast Territory is Kalalua's territory. And there's some rough mountain country and forest between him and the southern lobe where Pulani rules. She had been the ruler of the entire island. But, you know, several generations back, the northern chiefs had rebelled. And Kalahua has since taken over the north and declared himself to be king of the entire island. 
He claims that he's do this because Pualani had eaten pork, which is forbidden to women. Now, Wainwright says nobody really believes this because Pualani is a very pious woman. I mean, certainly he says she eats the, you know, the enemy chiefs that are killed in battle, but you know, she would never eat pork. And <laughs> Wainwright's owners have, have kind of commanded them to say, you know, their ships are to stay neutral into this conflict, that they really need access to both harbors because depending on the, the way the winds and the tides are, they sometimes can get in and out of one, but not the other. But Wainwright says, if it were up to him, he would be backing Pulani. She's always been kind and she's always been good to her word. Whereas Kalahua is a scrub and not to be trusted here. Yeah. So we, we're getting the scene set here. Mike, this is starting to feel like Mauritius Command. It's starting to feel like all those other novels where we get a bit of diplomatic context and I'm thinking, okay, this is a moment for a bit of a, you know, force of arms by Jack and some suborning and some intelligence work ashore by Steve. This is feeling pretty familiar. This time, when Wainwright describes having come into Pabe in the north to join two ships, the True Love and the Heart's Ease. True Love being the title of the book. Congrats to the American readers, chapter five, and we're just about getting there. Kalahua and some Europeans, along with some muskets, had fallen out with the two skippers. The True Love had been heaved down. It's kind of stuck there. Kalahua had said he wanted to borrow the ship's guns. Kalahua then had seized a score of the ship's men on various pretexts and told Wainwright that the ships would have no water, no supplies, and the men would not be released until his demands were satisfied. And he's described as having been odd, false, disagreeably confident, and had kept putting off meeting with Wainwright. So there's some bad faith going on over on this other island here. And while Kalahua had been up in the mountains with the Europeans, a fourth ship had appeared, and Wainwright had sent a message for her to water in the south and then head to Sydney Cove quickly to tell how they were being used. So we've got the True Love and the Heartsease still there over on Moahu, and we've got the Daisy that's come to, to Anamuka, fortunately, to encounter the surprise, to bring help, basically, to see if we can get this situation on the island there under control. And before Kalahu had returned, some big parties had visited, and a chief from the Sandwich Islands, a friend of Wainwright's, had told him that Kalahu is expecting the Franklin. And here we go, Mike. Here's the other part of the story. The Franklin, a heavy privateer, suspiciously close in size and armament to the surprise, 22 nine-pounders, which is, you know, no, no trivial matter, sailing under the American flag. Oh, here we go. We're back in the War of 1812. Yay! Uh, manned with Frenchmen from Canada and Louisiana. Well, how much more like a Jack Aubrey setup could this get? Kalahua's Europeans, we learn, had been speaking French and speaking a strange kind of English to Wainwright. So we suspect then that Kalahua is in some kind of background alliance here with these French-flagged Americans or Canadians or whatever they are. Wainwright had also heard that the French owner of this privateer had picked up hands in Hawaii and told a handsome half-French girl from the Marquesa Islands that as soon as the north and south on this island had weakened each other, he'd knock Kalahua on the head, destroy Pualani's war canoes, which is her chief strength, and declare Moahu to be a French possession. The people he's reported to have said would learn to cry, Vive l'Empereur, since the French had financed the ship. But after the war, this guy has apparently promised a very different regime, with equality for everyone, 
all property held in common, justice, peace, and plenty. Everything settled by discussion. And Mike, I'm going, Russo, 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 in in the back of my mind here. But we'll, we'll, we'll park Russo for a minute. Jack says, well, this is putting a very different face on it. Inwardly, he's glad. He's thinking of Stephen. He's thinking, this is the kind of thing that we came for. All right. Well, Wainwright says that he really couldn't do anything about the hold down true love. She was, you know, she was actually turned over. They were trying to fix a leak. But he prepared his ship and the Heartsies. So the Daisy and the Heartsies were getting prepared while Kalua was up in the mountains here. But that evening, a sail was sighted. So, you know, they're worried this is the Franklin coming in. The Heartsies got away, but the slow Daisy, she doesn't make it. She's going out second. She's slower. There's a broadside from the Franklin. The Daisy's carpenter and his mate were killed, and all of their boats are shattered by this broadside. But Wainwright says, luckily, the Franklin was really firing slowly. And before another broadside went off, the four top masks on the Franklin went by the board. He said, now, it was likely an overpress of sail rather than the Daisy stern chaser, which had just fired. But it meant that the Franklin could not follow the Daisy through the dogleg passage in the reef. So, ah, now we're learning how the Daisy ends up here on Atamuka with Jack to tell the story. They go up on deck, and they're very close to the reef. You know, the surprise is coming in, and Wainwright go, goes ahead and takes the ship in. The hands look very relieved. They say, you know, everybody except for Stephen and Martin and Mrs. Oaks, the folks who had no idea that it was getting a little dangerous, you know, is relieved. Mrs. Oaks is captivated. She's looking at the beautiful shore. Stephen and Martin are staring at a bird, of course. Yeah. Stephen believes it's an ancient murelet. And Martin says, no, 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 there'd never be one of those in these latitudes. And Stephen says, well, it's certainly an awk. Martin says, well, wait a minute. It circled the other ship, meaning the whaler Daisy, and landed in the foretop. So uh, kind of an an interesting scene here. I love how O'Brien is switching between the mission and the big details. And then Martin and Stephen and Mrs. Oaks here. It's great. So it's almost as if the surprise is following this bird. And how close to Stephen Matcher in Nirvana is this getting in just a few pages here? Right. They pass through the channel. They drop anchor so close to the whaler that this bird that they've been chasing can be clearly seen watching Stephen Martin curiously. And once again, we get a little anthropomorphization of a bird here, of course, because it's Patrick O'Brien. Wainwright, in turn, asks Jack over to dine, apologizes for the cramped state of his cabin. There's all these valuable bales of cargo that he's taken from the true love. There's no room to invite the other officers. But so Jack says, yes, I'll, I'll come over. He asks Wainwright to have Pakia make sure that his people don't come aboard the ship until Jack gives the word. He's maybe thinking that a few more things might go missing and the crew might get over-enthusiastic in what they want to deal on with the locals. Stephen asks Captain Aubrey, giving them giving him his formal title, if the bird on the whaler's front platform is an ancient murrelet. And Jack says he's no expert, but it does look a little elderly and asks, of course, as Jack would here at this stage, can it be eight? <laughs> and it's a nice little moment, Mike. Stephen is asking Jack for bird ID help. And uh, Jack is talking about birds in the way that Stephen's been talking about hatches here, which is a nice little concordance. Wainwright jumps in. He says, of course it's a murrelet. It's the surgeon's agent murrelet. He fills them in and says that her name is Agnes. 
the surgeon razor from from an egg, which is music to the ears of Stephen and Martin, a natural philosopher surgeon out here in the South Seas. So Wainwright invites Stephen to come across and meet this surgeon. And Stephen says, with permission, I'll come later on in my skiff. Over dinner, Wainwright tells Jack about trying to catch the Heartsies, you know, after they both escaped here as the Franklin was coming in. But, you know, his ship, the Daisy, was suffering from the Franklin's broadside. It had left a hole in him below the waterline, and the weather turned really thick and dirty. He hopes that she reached Sydney Cove. Jack says that, in fact, she did, and that he and the surprise have been sent to deal with the situation. Uh, he's proceeding to Moahu with all possible stash. And, and Wainwright, I think, is kind of blown over. He's so thrilled you know, to hear that the message got there and that, in fact, the surprise is here on purpose. Uh, he's very glad for the men that have been left behind, you know, in the north, kind of in, you know, in jail for the true love, which he says is a fine new Whitby built vessel. Ian. Whitby built, that's close to home for you, right? Oh, it is. Whitby, a beautiful um, fishing and shipbuilding and sometimes also jet mining and, and coal merchanting town on the northeast coast of England, northeast coast of the county of Yorkshire. Home of Captain James Cook, the guy that we've been talking about just a little while ago. Also home of lots of associations with whaling and all kinds of other ancient maritime worlds. It would certainly be the case. It would certainly be true that a Whitby-built collier or a Whitby-built cargo ship of any kind would be a particularly well-found, particularly sturdy kind of vessel. Captain Cook had his ship HMS Endeavour, his, his exploring ship, the one associated with all his great journeys of exploration and discovery, built in Whitby in 1764. She had originally been a coal carrier to be named the Earl of Pembroke, was bought by the Royal Navy in 1768, refitted and renamed the Endeavour. So Whitby's still there. It's still a great place to visit. Still a great place to go for some ancient uh, maritime heritage. It's a great place to go if you're a goth and a fan of Bram Stoker's Dracula as well, uh, and if you like fish and chips. Nice, nice. So besides all the kind of nice bucolic Whitby connections here, uh, we've got some connections between Wainwright and his desire to get on and help. He says, can the Daisy go with the surprise? Daisy doesn't have many guns. But he says he knows the waters, he knows the people and the language, and he has among his crew 19 prime seamen and officers. And Jack says, well, I appreciate the offer, but we have to get up there before the trade winds turn. He's going to go upwind. The Daisy's never going to be able to keep up with the surprise. And uh, Wainwright sort of half protests and says, well, she can go pretty quick, but no, no, actually, you're right. We can't keep up with the surprise. So Jack wants to catch the Franklin while she's still at anchor. Wainwright has heard that the captain of the Franklin has not cruised before and is a philosophical and theoretical gent. And this has got to be music to Jack's ears. He was he, He's preparing himself for, you know, uh, a well-found seaman-like, experienced, crafty French skipper, maybe. But he's getting a philosophical gent as his rival here. Jack says, OK, the sooner his capers are cut short, the better. Let us have no benevolent revolutions, no humanitarians, no goddamn systems, no panaceas. Look at that wicked fellow Cromwell and those vile Whigs in poor King James's time. A fine seaman he was too. So, so Jack is invoking the fear of anti-monarchists and Protestants going way back many centuries to try and stir himself and his crew up here. 
So true. Jack asked about the Daisy's damage and her needs. And Wainwright says that, well, a carpenter and his crew could probably fix the worst of it and get at least one of their boats patched up in a day's time. And Jack says, well, you know what? You know, send for my coxswain and, you know, I'll have Bondin fetch Mr. Bentley. He's a capital hand with a shot plug or a fractured knee. So Jack now, you know, even though he's like, I got to get going, I got to get going. He's like, okay, this is prime intelligence. This is a good man. We're going to help him out here. But while he's doing that, Stephen and Martin are off kind of pursuing their interests. Yeah, so we've got a bit of naturalizing to do. Stephen and Martin visit with the surgeon, the guy with the murrelet. You remember him? His name is Falconer. And it's funny, he's got a sort of Nathaniel Martin in reverse story here. He, it turns, as a physician ashore, had made enough money. Uh, He'd abandoned a lucrative private medical practice in Oxford to go to sea in his cousin's ships to pursue natural philosophy. He loves volcanoes and birds, but he's also dissected plenty of other things, including a narwhal, the white bear of the north, meaning a polar bear, and the sea elephant of the far south. He still loves medicine, and the three of them get talking about hydrophobia, known to us in the 21st century as rabies. Cases they'd known and different treatments. Dr. Franklin goes into this incredible detail about the story of the treatment of a young man going to sea who had been bitten by a mad foxhound. And although it seemed that the wound had completely healed, and although they'd done all his dosing and his different regimens, his symptoms had returned with a vengeance and the boy died. And Stephen's experience, he said, had been similar, except that he knew of one case where two bottles of whiskey drunk at stated intervals during a day had appeared to cure the patient. And Mike, from what we know about rabies in the 21st century, unless you get post-exposure prophylaxis or a vaccine to begin with, it's curtains, no matter how many bottles of whiskey you drink. It's a really dark turn to this conversation as well we, we we should talk in a couple of seconds about where this might be coming from but mentioning rabies in conjunction with some of the other things that are happening in this chapter i think it sets a uh, an important note here anyhow martin says that he was present when and he begins to describe a, another elaborate rabies cure but the two ships which were being warped in next to each other to help the carpenters had started to come together and all the calls of all hands all the nautical busyness finally drowned out Martin and his anecdote, whatever it was going to be, about a potential cure for rabies. Pullings cause for silence on the ship. Jack tells everyone the situation. Shipmates, we must run north as soon as ever the ship can be watered and victualled. We shall start watering directly. Then tonight, half of each mess may have a run ashore. Tomorrow we'll complete our water and start trading, and tomorrow night the other half may leave. The next day, after trading again in the morning, we must get underway at the beginning of the ebb. There is not a moment to be lost. And Mike, just for a moment here, we're back in the happy zone of Jack finishing off the chapter, back in command, motivating the crew and giving everybody a little bit of something that they want. Right. But the, the, the association of rabies here and all of the dark doings that we've been hearing about earlier on in the chapter, I don't think it's an accident, Mike, that we're hearing about rabies, rabies which a single carrier can carry without symptoms and without the disease progressing, which a single carrier can then spread. And I've, I'm sure it's meant to be a juxtaposition in our minds. We've got the idea of an animal carrying rabies, this deadly, deadly, incurable disease with this terrible kind of silent incubation period and the arrival on board ship, and particularly among the officers of Clarissa Oaks, and all the tensions 
and the jealousies and the misconduct that she's stirring up here. Rabies is a terrible disease. It's, as I say, if you're if you're not treated, it's fatal. Um, it's also often I think it's interesting that rabies is often associated with madness, and you know a, a rabid dog is not a good dog. You know, there's, there's there's nothing about rabies that evokes pity for the the animal or the the, the human that passes on the infection. Passing on the infection is a you know, is, is being a vector for evil, if you like. And I'm sure, again, that's a, a, a connection that we're supposed to make to Clarissa here. Yeah, a, a vector for evil. And I think in, in, in times not so far in the past that, that people who were even suspected of being bitten by a mad dog, as you say, you know, either committed suicide or were killed by the people around yeah. them. You know, some of it, like rather to face rather than face a symptom, some of it rather than get this thing to spread anywhere. So yeah, it really does take on this a very you know I think we use ominous, ominous, ominous so many times, but yeah, this one is definitely it. Well, you know what a set of potential revelations about Clarissa Oaks, yeah, uh, you know, and and the men who are attracted to her, the impact of all this on the crew that seems to be coming about here. Yeah. Um- Where's that going to take the crew? It, it is. It has looked so far like the surprise is slowly falling apart. Is that going to be fixed by the prospect of action and taking on this usurper in the uh, in the island of Moahu here? Does that mean that the officers can learn to deal with each other? What about the crew? It seemed that there's even dissent among the crew and divisions arising among the crew. Is that all going to be taken care of by action? I don't know. Yeah. And we, we've got this, you know, this opportunity perhaps for Jack and Stephen to be working together on this mission now, or at least, you know, as Jack's listened to Wainwright, he's saying, oh yeah, this will be easier to bring Stephen on board. It'd be fascinating to find that it is. It sure would be nice to have them working closely together again. There's been so many things kind of separating them here recently here, you know, yeah. now um, as and I, I think I say this every week. It's clearly no straight journey to South America in store. <laughs> it doesn't no, seem like. But, we're still heading north. <laughs> yeah. But clearly there's some interesting side journeys. There's some stories of interest. Certainly there's several lines that I'm really hot to pursue here. But, you know, we often know that Patrick O'Brien is sometimes not linear in the way he tells these things and, and in the way the plot's going to roll on. So, you know, I wonder what we're going to have in store next week. I don't know, Mike. What do you say to just a little more Patrick O'Brien? Oh, I would like that of all things. in the back of my mind here but we'll we'll, we'll park russo for a minute um, hopefully everybody has a bit of grog ready because i think we're going to talk about russo that mumping villain gushing carefully calculated tears false confidences untrue confessions enthusiasm romantic vistas